Good evening, and this week's Parsha is quite a legendary Parsha. It's the time when God split the sea. God split the sea for the Jewish people. Now, by the way, before we get too excited about the splitting of the sea, or in order for us to get extra excited about the splitting of the sea, I'd like to share with you an interesting fact, or an interesting little uh, tidbit about Kriyat Yamsuf, the splitting of the sea. How do we hear the story all the time? And how is it even expressed in the Torah? The Jewish people left Egypt, and they're at the sea, their backs are to the sea, or whatever, they're, they're in front of the sea, and behind them is the Egyptians are, are chasing them, and um, there's nowhere for, that to, for them to run. And finally, God split the sea, and they came across on dry land, they got to the other side, the Egyptians came into the sea, and the Egyptians were drowned. Now, the truth of the matter is, the Jews never had to end up at sea. And there is an opinion that states that they did not go from one end to the other end. In fact, they came into the sea and came out on the same side. They made a U-turn inside the water and came out on the same side. Why do I say this? Because the story of Kriyas Yamsuf, of the splitting of the sea, is not just about saving the Jews. Yes, there, there, is, there is that element of redemption. There is that miracle. This is how we save the Jews. This is how God saves the Jews. But there's something much more much deeper to this entire thing. In other words, Kriyas Yamsuf, the splitting of the sea, is a step in reaching Sinai. When the Jewish people left Egypt, they didn't just become free people. That wasn't that was not the the accomplishment of this of, of Yitziat Mitzrayim of leaving Egypt. The whole purpose of leaving Egypt was in order that the Jewish people should reach Sinai and become God's nation. That they should receive the Torah. They should become a nation that is bound to each other and to God through Torah and mitzvahs. This was the entire purpose of Yitziat Mitzrayim, the, the, the exodus from Egypt. The only way the giving of the Torah can happen is if the Jewish people experience Kriyas Yamsuf, the splitting of the sea. This is a bit of a deeper understanding to the entire story. But if you even look at the bare facts of how the story unfolded, how the story happened, there is an indication, a very strong indication, that uh, it's not just about saving the Jews from the Egyptians. It's more about preparing the Jews for what's to come. And, just like everything in the Torah, it's not just about a story that happened 3,300 years ago. This is about the story of our lives today. How we can be better Jews. Alright, so with that in mind, let's go into the story as the Torah tells it to us. Page 3. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled. Now what does that mean? If you look at the, at the, the, the Torah narrative of uh, you know, Moses giving, a, giving over the message to Pharaoh... He never tells him we're leaving for good. He says we're going to go for three days into the desert to serve God. And this is what Pharaoh didn't allow. He did not allow them to leave for three days to serve God. And finally, after the killing of the firstborn, the death of the firstborn, finally he said, okay, go. Go and serve God. He didn't say go and, and be, you know, be gone. I don't want to see you again. <laughs> he said go and serve God. Okay. The Jewish people left and Pharaoh sent... Um, I say, uh, agents together with them to remind them after three days, after have to come back home, go back to work. After three days, the Jew says, oh no, <laughs> we left for good. So the agents went back to Pharaoh, and here is where source one opens up. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We have let the Jews go and have lost them as slaves. So Pharaoh had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots. That would be like, like Abram's tanks. Okay? The best chariots. Uh, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Jews who were marching out boldly. Pharaoh needed to have a little bit of uh, encouragement from God to go and do this little... Uh, escapade because uh, he was certainly traumatized from the past year of all these 10 plagues and especially the death of the firstborn 
But God helped him along. He gave him a bit of a hardened heart. And uh, I guess he had a, <laughs> he forgot about all the trauma. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Jews and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Hachirot, opposite Baal-Tzephon. Baal-Tzephon was an Egyptian idol. During the, destruction, during the death of the firstborn, yeah, on the night of Pesach, all the Egyptian idols were destroyed. They just automatically just fell apart. They fell apart, besides for one. The biggest, largest idol was Baal-Tzephon, which was on the border of Egypt. That one God allowed to remain in order to trick Pharaoh, in order to convince, in order to allow Pharaoh to convince himself that his idol, that his deity, was also in control. And when he saw that the Jews had camped opposite Baal-Tzephon, he figured Baal-Tzephon was on his side. Or that Baal-Tzephon had some... Well, was, uh, was potent, you know, he was, he was able to do something. As Pharaoh approached, the Jews looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to God. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to die in the desert? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance God will bring you today. The Egypt you see today, you will never see again. God will fight for you. You will remain silent. This is Moshe's response to the frightened Israelites. Then God said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Jews to go forward. All right. So the Jerusalem Talmud tells us that, uh, points out, the Jerusalem Talmud points out that Moshe's response to the Jewish people is way too detailed. There's a, there's a lot going on over here. The Jewish people come and they say, why didn't he just let us, you know, let us just serve the Egyptians? We want to go, you know, we don't want to die in the desert. That's all they want. They, they just wanted to have reassurance that they're going to live, that everything will be okay. Moshe doesn't say that. Moshe says a whole bunch of different details. He says, do not be afraid, all right? Um, Egypt that you see today, you will never see them again. God will fight for you. You remain silent. What, why does he have to say all of these details in his response? So the Jerusalem Talmud tells us the, this, the following fascinating story about this complaint that the Jews had to Moses. It wasn't really just a complaint. They, you know, two Jews, three opinions. Mm-hmm. Amazingly, had millions of Jews, and they all split up into four camps. So they were doing pretty good. I guess they didn't have enough practice in being, mm-hmm. uh, being Jewish, huh? <laughs> all right. Source number two. Our ancestors split into four groups at the sea. One said, let us drown. They wanted to commit suicide. They wanted to jump in and die. Another said, let us return to Egypt. They were going to raise the white flag, go back. Another said, let us wage war with them. Right? Jews don't give in so easily. Let's fight. Another said, we will cry out to God. Let's pray. Right? Moses told the ones who wanted to drown... So, so now his response is to each one of these four groups. To the ones who wanted to drown, Moses said, Stand firm and you will see God's salvation. No, no need to commit suicide. No need to jump in. Don't worry about it. A miracle will happen. God will save you. Moses told the ones who wanted to return to Egypt, The Egypt you see today, you will never see again. Moses to the ones who wanted to wage war. So he said, God will fight for you. You have no reason to fight. And finally, Moses told the ones who wanted to cry out to God, you will remain silent. Don't even pray. And I recently heard a story. Uh, there's a chassid. His name was Mendel Futterfass. Mendel Futterfass was a legendary Chabad chassid who uh, he lived in Soviet Russia. He was one of the main activists in the Chabad community in Soviet Russia in the 20s, 30s, 40s. He was ultimately arrested and sent off to Siberia for eight years. 
and he he he, um, he said the following story that there was there was a certain nachalnik. You know, nachalnik means like a manager, like a someone that was in charge of the work. Foreman. A foreman. There we go. There was a foreman in in one of these camps that was known to be extremely brutal, very very brutal. And he was extremely brutal, specifically to intelligentsia. You know what that is? The intelligent people. In Siberia, you didn't just have hardened criminals who deserved to be there. You had professors, poets, engineers, you know, people that uh, they were just a little bit more intelligent. And uh, the communist regime figured that they were, a, uh, they were a threat to their regime. So therefore, they sent them off to Siberia. So this foreman was vicious in general, but especially to intelligentsia. To, to these people, Mendelfotofas was part of, was, was you know was was an intelligent guy, even though I don't know if his if his official career path put him into that category, but um, anyway he was friends with a lot of these guys. They appreciated Mendel. He was a very intelligent person. They were able to have normal conversations, and he appreciated them too. And there was one time that that his group of of, of prisoners they were told that they're going to be transferred to this and this camp under this Nachalnik. Now, one of the professors that was that was a fellow prisoner with Reb Mendel, he was he was so upset and he was so frightened about uh, serving under this Nachalnik, he wanted to commit suicide. I told Reb Mendel, "I'd rather die than to serve under this guy. He's gonna he's gonna make my life a living hell." So Reb Mendel said, "Hold it, hold it, don't, no need to rush. Let's wait till we get there. Let's see what happens." So he didn't commit suicide, and by the time they got to that camp, that Nachalnik had been sent away to a different camp. Oh, that, that reminds me of that first answer. You know, Moses tells you, they say, let's jump into the sea. We don't want to go back to Egypt. Moses tells him, hey, hold it. Don't rush. No need to rush. Let's, uh, you know, get, you'll see the miracle. No, no need to jump off the roof. The miracle is there. Give it some time. No need to rush things. Um, also, the, you know, they, they wanted to, um, those that wanted to pray, Moses says, now is not a time to pray. Don't pray. Don't do anyone any favors. That was not prayer time. All righty. So the Rebbe uh, spoke about this on numerous occasions. a very fascinating story. And especially how we can apply it to us. All right. So on page four on the bottom. So the Rebbe starts to analyze the story of, from the Jerusalem Talmud. The lengthiness of Moshe's answer teaches us that he was responding to four camps among the Jewish people. To those that advocated jumping into the sea... Moses said, stand firm and you will see God's deliverance. To those that advocated returning to Egypt, he responded, the Egypt, the Egypt you see today, you will never see again. To those that advocated war, he said, God will fight for you. And to the fourth group that advocated crying out in prayer, he responded, you will remain silent. All right, so let's, uh, let's go into this. Page five, the first camp advocated jumping into the sea. These people maintain that the nation needs to sacrifice their lives in order not to return to Egypt. It's an interesting thing here. In other words, it wasn't just that they had given up hope on life. <laughs> oh, you're going to go back to Egypt? I'd rather die than be a slave again in Egypt. No, they felt that there was a specific virtue in, in sacrificing their lives so that they shouldn't become slaves once again to Egypt. Let's continue here. Following the giving of the Torah, we were commanded to sacrifice our lives in order to avoid transgressing certain specific commandments, which are known as the big three, right? You're not allowed to serve idols, no matter what, even if someone's going to kill a person as a result. You're not allowed to commit adultery and you're not allowed to murder. These are the big three. We are obligated to give up our lives in order not to, in order not to uh, uh, violate these three commandments. This group among the Jews maintained that the mitzvah to leave Egypt was such a mitzvah that requires sacrificing their lives if necessary. Moses had led them out of Egypt, they had seen God's great wonders, and they had been told that this is a divine redemption from their difficult exile. Suddenly, 600 chariots arrive in order to return them to slavery in Egypt, contrary to God's will. This camp among the Jews concluded that they must sacrifice their lives in order not to return to Egypt. But they didn't see any other way other than committing suicide. The only way to do this was to jump into the sea. So that's what they believed was required of them. Fascinating. It's not that they had given up on life. They would rather die than serve the Egyptians. 
They were told by God, now is your time for redemption. You have to leave Egypt. Going back is not an option. But in their minds, the only way to stay out of Egypt was by jumping into the sea. What does Moses tell them? There are other options. Where are you running? Where are you rushing? God could do a, if God could take you out of Egypt, God could save you from the 600 chariots as well. So you see that even though they had been taken out of Egypt, the Egypt mentality, the slavery mentality had not left them. There's a famous line, you can take the, the slave out of slavery, can you take slavery out of the slave? When the Jewish people left Egypt, yes, technically they were free. But they had a lot of baggage. And understandably so. In fact, in this week's parasha, we describe the exodus from Egypt as they fled. That's what we read in the beginning, when Pharaoh heard that they fled. You run away from something when you feel that it's still very close, very imminent. They didn't leave Egypt calmly. Why? Because any moment they could be taken back. They were still under the influence of Mitzrayim, influ the influence of slavery. And therefore it was possible for committed Jews, by the way, it wasn't that they were, that they were doubting anything. They knew they had an obligation to stay out of Egypt and all of a sudden they see 600 chariots, that was too much for them. They couldn't see any other way out besides for jumping into the sea and they were willing to do so out of devotion for God. Moses tells him, whoa, very nice, you're devoted to God. But don't give God ideas of how you have to stay out of Egypt. God could do even more. If he could take you out of Egypt, if he could smite the Egyptians with ten plagues, he could save you from the 600 chariots. Have patience. Believe that the miracle can happen. What about the second one? The second camp advocated, retur advocated returning to Egypt. What's going on over here? <laughs> They had given up to the point and they said, you know what, <laughs> that's it, let's just raise the white flag. Nebuchadnezzar says, no, no, no. Their logic was that these events are an indication that they hadn't yet finished their job in Egypt, which was to elevate the divine sparks located there. Okay, that's an interesting twist here. We would have thought that this group was like the worst among them, Right? They said, ah, you know, they're chasing after us. You know what? Let's just go back and become slaves again. At least the first group had the integrity of saying, I'd rather die than be a slave again. Right? How did, uh, I forgot who it was, Patrick Henry, you said, give me liberty or give me death. Okay. So fine. there's something there. There's something to look up to. There, there's a heroic stance here. This group, no, they, they, weren't, they, they weren't pacifists. They, weren't, they, they didn't give up so easy. They thought to themselves, you know what? <clears throat> we believe in God. We believe that everything that happens is ordained from above. And the fact that we left Egypt, but now the Egyptians are coming to schlep us back, that's not because the Egyptians have the power to schlep us back. It's because God wants us to go back. Just like originally when we came down to Egypt, when Jacob came down to Egypt, he didn't go because he was forced to go God wanted him to go. So just like God wanted Jacob to go down to Egypt 210 years ago, and nothing would have, we had to go back. The fact that the chariots are coming and chasing us, apparently God has a different plan for us. Apparently we still haven't finished our mission in Egypt. Jacob came down 210 years ago to accomplish a certain mission. We still have to finish our mission. Let's continue. Hasidic and Musar sources state that when a person is sent to a particular place, for a specific purpose, later told to leave that place, <clears throat> and then suddenly instructed to return, it is an indication that their mission in that place hasn't yet been completed. Right? This might actually help you out the next time you're somewhere, and uh, you plan on leaving on a, five, <laughs> on a 5 p.m. flight, and all of a sudden you're delayed. You're delayed and delayed and delayed, and they take you off the plane, and say you're going to have to stay here one more night and go back. You come back tomorrow at 6 a.m. And you could uh, be upset or you could realize, hey, apparently there's something I need to do here. I don't know what it is, but apparently God wants me to make a blessing in this place. He wants me to, who knows what? You never know. Right? In our case, the Jewish people were commanded to empty out Egypt. Right? Before they left Egypt, they were told they should go and they should collect all the valuables. Gold, silver, diamonds, precious clothing, all of that. They have to empty it out. 
The Talmud explains that this means that they were instructed to leave Egypt like a bird trap empty of food, and like an abyss in the sea empty of fish. Seeing the Egyptians coming out to chase them with 600 chariots, and with nowhere for them to run, they took this as proof that their role in Egypt had not yet been completed. They therefore decided that they must return to Egypt for an additional period of time in order to elevate the divine sparks that evidently remained. So they're not losers. They're not, they're not uh, you know, just, just trying to do anything to survive. They're willing to sacrifice all of their ideals in order just to survive, in order to remain alive. No, they, they thought that perhaps this is an indication that we have to go back and do our job. We didn't do our job right. We have more to accomplish. All right, let's continue number seven, page seven. The third camp advocated fighting the Egyptians. The general rule is that we can't rely on miracles. The Jewish people were few in number and weak in strength relative to the Egyptians, who had 600 chariots and a great military force. Why then did they even consider trying to fight them? The answer is that they simply saw no other choice. To jump into the sea would be suicidal, contrary to the Torah's command to preserve life. Returning to Egypt would contravene Moshe's instructions to leave Egypt. They therefore argue that the circumstances indicate that they must fight and employ all possible military tactics in an attempt to overpower the Egyptians. Again, it's not that they were itching for a fight. Based on their understanding of, of, of Jewish ideals, based on their understanding of how, what it means to live Jewishly, they had no other choice other than to fight. Committing suicide is not an option. And going against Moshe's instruction to leave Egypt is also not an option. So that's it. I, uh, it doesn't seem like we could win. We have to do our part. So far, all three of them are actually very Jewish concepts, right? One of them is willing to go on mysterious nefesh, willing to give up their lives in order to not, uh, in, in order to observe the mitzvah of leaving Egypt, in order not to go back. It's very laudable. The second one said, one second, we're, we're, Obviously, we still have a job to do there. Otherwise, if, if God didn't want us to go back, these 600 chariots wouldn't, wouldn't be chasing us. And the third group is saying, apparently, we are being given a mission right now to fight because we can't go back. We can't jump into the sea. So we have to fight. We have to do our part. It's a very Jewish way of looking at things. <clears throat> Number four. The fourth group appears to have advocated the best solution, praying to God vigorously and loudly. This raises the question, why didn't Moses agree with this approach? Prayer is the best. Why didn't Moses adopt their position? Jews want to pray, and Moses tells them to be silent. What's going on here? So here's the deal. God said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Speak to the Israelites and tell them to go forward. Sometimes there are situations that call on us to pack our talus and tefillin, Stop davening. Go outside and split the sea. That's what you got to do now. Now is not a time to daven. Now is not a time to talk to God. Now is the time to go ahead and split the sea. God told them, start to travel. They started to travel and apparently the sea split. But what does it it mean? They have to stop davening and start splitting the sea. So the Rebbe is going to explain that the sea represents the concept of concealment, right? The Talmud says that everything on dry land has a parallel in the sea, right? There's, there's vegetation, there's animals, there's all different types of animals, there's predators, all, all different things. There's precious stones, there's uh, oil, there's, there's a lot. Everything is going on over the, uh, under the ocean, under, under, the, under the sea. There's everything there. Everything that you have in the dry land, you have in the ocean. The difference between the land and the sea is that on dry land we can see everything, but in the sea, everything is concealed. All we can see is the water. This is akin to the state of exile, in which we don't see God's wonders, and everything is concealed. (coughs) There are miracles even during exile, but only God is aware of them. And even the subject of the miracle, even the one to whom the miracle is happening, doesn't recognize the miracles that have happened to him. 
We don't recognize the miracles because we live in a state of concealment. And it applies, and it appears to us that the world is just following its natural course. That's what it means to be below sea level, to be underwater. When you're underwater, you don't, you don't realize what's going on around you. You don't see what's happening. You don't see the truth. Just like when you look at the ocean, you think all you see is water. That's it. That's all there is. So there's no difference between the ocean, the sea, and my bathtub. Is there anything going on in that bath- bathtub? It's empty. It's water. It's just water. So you think, that, you think that the same thing is going on in the sea. That's not true. It's an entire universe under that sea, under the water. And everything that you have on the dry land is down there under the water. You just don't see it. And the same thing is true with regard to divine revelation and miracles. There are times when we're underwater. In the time of exile, we're in the sea, we're in the ocean. We don't see what's going on. We don't notice it. Then there's Yabasha. There's the revealed, the revealed world, a certain a reality when we can see the truth, when we can see and appreciate the miracles that are going on around us. So what is split? If you're in the sea, so what do you have to do? The job is to split the sea, which means uncovering the concealment, revealing godliness even during the time of exile. This is the meaning of God's instructions. Speak to the Israelites and tell them to go forward. We must jump into the sea and split it. Uncover the concealment. When we do this, we will witness God's deliverance just as the Jewish people did during the Exodus. All right. What what does that mean? (laughs) Too many options. What? Too many options. There's too many options? What do you mean? It seems that there's only one option. The only option is God's option. In other words, the Jews, very very fascinating. The Jews, the Jews are in a they're, they're, they're in a predicament, right? They're stuck in front of the in front of the sea, and the Egyptians are coming after them. They didn't panic. You notice that they didn't panic, and all of a sudden everyone had their own opinion, and all screaming and shouting. One wants to commit suicide. One says, "Let's fight them." One says, "Let's just give up." One says, "Oi, let's just scream." Tata. No, no, no. That's not what happened. They, they immediately. Returned to their to their intellectual training. They said, "One second, what what are we supposed to do under the in, in this circumstance?" So there was an entire group that said, "What do you mean? Moshe told us that we have to leave Egypt. God gave us a mitzvah to become free. We have to be willing to give up our lives. So we're going to give up our lives in order not to go back to Egypt." The other one said, well, "What are you talking about? Don't you believe that whenever something happens, that's a, a God's providence?" Apparently, God wants us to do a job in Egypt. Well, why are we fighting City Hall? Go back. They're not saying this out of panic. They're saying this out of, out of focus. It's actually fascinating, the type of focus that they have. That you have the ones that say they want to fight. They say, look, we don't have a choice. Can't go back to Egypt. Moshe said not to go. Can't commit suicide. That's against the Torah. Right? So we have to fight. Even if it doesn't make any sense to fight. Look, we have to do it. We have to do our part. And finally, the fourth one said, What's that? Don't we have training from our ancestors? We have to go and daven to Hashem. We have to pray to God. God should take care of the situation. They didn't panic. There was no chaos here. It was four intellectual, logical, anchored ideas of how to respond to the crisis. And what does God tell them? God says, No. In other words, all of you guys. You're not wrong, intellectually speaking. You're, you're, not, you're not incorrect and you're not, in other words, you're not, you're not children that are panicking. I, I appreciate each one of these approaches. But that's not your job now. Your job now is to split the sea. You have a mission. And if you have a mission, if you have a job to do, don't get distracted with anything else. Even with something as beautiful and as, uh, how do you say, has tried and tested as prayer. Right? In the past, how did the Jewish people leave Egypt in the first place? They cried out to God, they prayed to God, and God sent Moses. So it worked in the past. God says, but that's not your job now. You have a mission to split the sea. And what's the meaning of splitting the sea? Reveal that which is hidden in this world. Reveal the truth that God is everywhere. Miracles are happening all around us. 
Well, what, what does that mean? <clears throat> Page 10. We can't split the sea while we are standing on dry land. God told the Jewish people, here's your problem. You're trying to accomplish the mission while staying on dry land. That's not how it works. We need to go forward and jump into the sea. What's the argument against that? Who wants to jump into cold water? I don't belong in the sea. I belong in dry land. That's my comfort zone. Only when we do this can we truly go forward from our previous state and witness God's deliverance and see how He is fighting on our behalf with great wonders as the Jews witnessed during the Exodus. There's an expression in Yiddish like this, you have to put your pinky finger in cold water. No one likes to go into cold water. Cold water is uncomfortable. But in order to get things done, sometimes you gotta, you got to go into the cold water. At least a finger. Can't even put your finger in cold water. Come on. What was God telling the Jewish people? What was Moses telling the Jewish people in the name of God? You all want to resort to your comfort zones. You all want to find logical responses to the crisis. Why? Because it's so comfortable for us to, to see a crisis. Let's respond to the crisis. Let's, Moshe said, why are you in crisis mode at the moment? You have to be in mission mode at the moment. You have a mission. What's your mission? Go to Sinai. Start to travel. And the problem is if you travel, you're going to go into cold water. That's exactly the point. In order to accomplish the mission, you have to be willing to go out of your comfort zone. As long as you want to stay on dry land, you're in your comfort zone, you want to figure out, well, how do we respond to the Egyptians? How do we analyze the situation? What, how do we deal with this? Stop dealing with crises. We love dealing with crises all the time. Stop! There's a crisis brewing. Why is that even your concern? You should be focused on one thing alone. And what is that? The goal, which is to go to Sinai. But in order to do that, I have to jump into cold water. Welcome to Judaism, my friend. If you want to be successful in Judaism, you have to be willing to put your finger in cold water and sometimes to jump into cold water. Yeah, you got to do it sometimes. Sometimes the path forward is not necessarily something that you've learned in the rule book. It's not necessarily something that your logical thinking is going to conclude, oh, that's how I have to do it. Sometimes you have to just take a leap forward. Not a leap of faith. Just get out of your comfort zone, that's all. Go off of the dry land and go into the water. Get cold, get wet. Um, So the Rebbe is going to uh, take this into into conversation with her concept of teshuva, of uh, repentance. So in general, repentance is... um, is also a logical thing, right? You do something wrong, you say, I'm sorry, okay, you're back in the good graces of God, you know, it can follow a logical path. But then sometimes, teshuva demands a certain leap, a certain jump out of the comfort zone of logic. Source number three, this is from the Mishnah. One who says, I will sin and then repent, I will sin, you know, I'm sinning because eh, eventually I'll do teshuva. Uh, so I will sin and then repent, sin and repent. Such a person is not given the opportunity to repent. That sounds logical, right? The whole reason why you sinned was because you were depending on repentance. So therefore, it was uh, the punishment for that is that repentance is going to be kind of out of your... You're not going to have the opportunity. So let's go to source number four, which is from Tanya. The Altebbe says like this. The, the, the Mishnah is very specific. It doesn't say this person can never do Teshuvah. It says one is not given the opportunity to repent. The sages use this language to say that one is not given assistance to repent. But if they push and really try to overcome their bad inclination and repent, their penitence is accepted. You know, logically speaking, it doesn't make sense that this person should be able to repent. Why? Because the, the, what motivated the sin was the repentance itself. 
And there's an expression, the, the, the prosecutor cannot become the defender. Right? If you're the prosecutor, so, so how, how can you not go on the defense? If the reason why a person sinned was the repentance, so how could repentance fix up the sin? That's where you're talking logic. But the Altar says, our sages didn't say that repentance is impossible. It is possible. You just got to work. You got you to push. You got to really jump into it. So that's here on page 11 in the middle. We can take an example from a person who is pursuing repentance. If he only takes measured steps, it will be difficult for him to leave his previous state. This is all the more so regarding a person who isn't given the opportunity to repent and is only able to achieve repentance if he forces his way through on his own. In general, repentance demands you know, a lot of hard work and jumping and leaping, etc. But especially a guy who said, I'm going to sin and then repent, so even such a person, but it's possible. You got to push. Sometimes in order to achieve what you want to achieve, you have to get out of your comfort zone. You have to push really hard. The, the classical example of this, of a person that uh, it seemed that the doors teshuva, to, for teshuva had been closed, that it was impossible for this person to do teshuva. Nevertheless, really, he was expected to work hard on doing teshuva. So um, the Sphinx is actually a very, it's a very tragic story. There was a great sage, his name was Elisha ben Avuya. Mm-hmm. Elisha ben Avuya uh, was, 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 was a brilliant teacher, a brilliant scholar. He was the mentor of Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Meir was one of the most brilliant scholars ever to live. In fact, he was so brilliant that this other sages during his generation had a hard time comprehending his logic. He was, he was a very, very brilliant mind. So Rabbi Meir's mentor was Elisha ben Avuya. And one day, Elisha ben Avuya became an apostate, a heretic. It's a whole story of how that happened. But anyway, I'm not going to get into that story. So the sages taught. Oh, so, so after he became a heretic, so he was ostracized from the community. I mean, this was a really, it was a very, very delicate situation. And the sages, they wanted to kind of strike out his legacy from Judaism. And so instead of calling him Elisha ben Avuya, they started to call him Acher. The other one. The guy that basically, you know, became, became a traitor. He was an other one. Even after he became an apostate, Rabbi Meir continued to learn Torah from, from him. They asked Rabbi Meir, how could you learn Torah from such a heretic? So he said, look, it, it's, like, it's, like eating, it's like eating nuts. When you want to eat nuts, nuts come in a, in a shell. So he says, if you, if, if you don't know how to eat nuts and you take it all into your mouth, it's going to hurt you, right? You're going to get... But I know how to crack open the shell and take out the fruit and eat it. What he was saying was, when I hear Torah from Acher, I know there's a lot of baggage. There's a lot of garbage. I know how to sift through the garbage and to pick out the good stuff. And so that's very valuable for me. He's my mentor and my teacher. So he would continue learning Torah from Acher. <coughs> so the sages taught, they say the following story. Acher was riding a horse on Shabbos, a violation of Shabbos. And Rabbi Meir was chasing after him, wishing to learn Torah from him. But, but Acher was, was on the horse and he was traveling outside of the city. Now there is a prohibition on Shabbos. One is not allowed to walk a certain distance outside of the city limits. Outside of what's called Tchum Shabbos. The, the, the boundary, the, the, the borders of, of Shabbos. So Acher told Meir, he says, Meir, retreat. For I have measured, and this is how far you can walk on Shabbos. Even though he's an apostate, a heretic. But he knows the halacha. And he was telling Meir, uh uh-uh, pastor, you're not allowed to walk. So Rabbi Meir turns to Ach and he says, he responded, so turn around yourself. He says, well, you're also a Yid, you're also Jewish. You can't either go further. Turn around. The man answered, Acher answered, I already told you that I heard a heavenly voice proclaim Return wayward sons, except for Acher. In other words, he heard, Acher heard some heavenly voice saying that Acher can never do Teshuvah. Apparently, right? Because it says, return wayward sons. It's talking to all the Jews that for whatever reason need to do Teshuvah. He says, return, besides for Acher, Acher is not getting the invitation. So what did Acher learn from that? 
that it was impossible. Okay. When Acher died, the heavenly court said he will not be sentenced to purgatory, but he will also not enter the world to come. He will not be sentenced to purgatory because he studied and taught Torah, but he will not enter the world to come because he sinned. So Rabbi Meir said, it would be better if they punish him. They should send him off to hell and then allow him to enter the world to come. All right. When Rabbi Meir approached his death, his own death, he asked for mercy for Acher, and God accepted his prayer. Rabbi Meir never gave up on Acher, never gave up on his, on his soul. So like this, Acher, was he right or was he wrong? The fact that Acher died an apostate, a heretic, was he correct or was he incorrect? One might argue that he was right. Why? Because he never got the invitation to do Teshuvah. The Rebbe says, no, this was the mistake of Acher. Even though he heard a divine proclamation that he could not repent, he shouldn't have been deterred. If he would have forced his way through, he would have succeeded. As indeed happened to him eventually through his students' efforts. It seems from the heavenly voice that Acher has no chance of ever being in God's good graces. And that, that was the conclusion that he came to. But his student Rabbi Meir never gave up. And he prayed on his behalf and he prayed on his behalf until finally he was able to, you know, push him in. And he did push him in. Which means that Acher himself could have pushed himself in. But he needed to push. What do we see from here? That sometimes, or many times, or most of the times, or all the time, Judaism expects us to jump out of our comfort zone. You don't want to go into someone's home uninvited. You only want to come invited. If the heavenly voice said everyone should return besides Racher, okay, I'm not supposed to be here. Buddy, go anyway. The Talmud says the following, do whatever the master commands except for leave. And the Shalot, who was a great Kabbalist, he says, this is what the rabbis meant. The master is God. Whatever he commands are the mitzvahs, and we must do them. The only mitzvah we're not supposed to listen to is leave. If he says to leave his home and not enter, like with Acher, do not listen. Repent, for this is what the master really wants. He is merely testing you. He is not inviting you. He's pushing you out the door to see if you really want to be there. It's uncomfortable. But that's what's expected. Let's continue on page 13. The sages say, Obey everything the master tells you except for leave. Musar works state that this means that a person must always follow the letter of the law except when it tells you to leave. The Code of Jewish Law and Maimonides state that there are 24 things that obstruct repentance. It's actually a, it's a very interesting list. <laughs> If someone caused others to sin, if someone um, purchased stolen goods from a thief, very interesting thing, because you know if you if you purchase stolen goods from a thief, so you're encouraging the thief to continue stealing, and you never know how to return the goods. Um, and there's a lot of the basically it's a list of 24 things that uh, that if someone does them, it's it's very difficult to do teshuva afterwards. So a person could take this to heart, knowing that he has done one or more of those things and decide that he needs to live to leave. He may think that everyone is invited to repent aside for him, aside, just like Acher. God forbid that one should think this way. About this we are told to obey except for leave. Don't listen to the letter of the law that tells you to leave. Work hard and force your way in. How do you force your way in? The way to force entry is through acting with complete self-sacrifice. There is a law that states that we may only give up our lives for three cardinal sins. But what if a person wishes to sacrifice his life to avoid a different transgression? Is it a mitzvah or a sin to do so? There is a dispute between Maimonides and other authorities about whether this is permitted. Maimonides rules that under regular circumstances it is forbidden for a person to sacrifice his life. But Maimonides agrees that under certain conditions 
Pious individuals are allowed to sacrifice their lives even for other commandments. The Medrash relates about a person beaten with mortal blows for eating matzah and other such mitzvahs. These aren't the three cardinal sins, but nevertheless, as an act of piety, it is permitted to sacrifice one's life for this. Um, and here we, we're going to learn this medrash, which describes this. So there's a, there's a verse in Zechariah. He asked him, what are these wounds between your hands? And he said, I was beaten in the house of my friends. What does the house of my friends mean? So the medrash explains, why are you being... St-? In other words, uh, I, I believe the medrash is speaking during you know, the time of... The time of Hanukkah, the Greeks had outlawed certain mitzvahs, and Jews were doing those mitzvahs, they were being caught, and they were being killed as a result. So this is the conversation that happens between the onlooker, right, the bystander, and the Jew that is being punished. Why are you being stoned for circumcising my son? Why are you being burned for keeping Shabbos? Why are you being killed for eating matzah? Why are you being whipped for building a sukkah? for blessing the lulav, for wrapping tefillin, for wearing techeles, techeles is the blue string on the, on the tzitzit, for fulfilling the will of my Father in heaven. As the verse states, he asked him, what are these wounds between your hands? These wounds caused me to love my Father in heaven. What we see from here is that uh, the concept of mesiras nefesh, of being willing to sacrifice your life for a mitzvah, is not limited to these three cardinal sins. When it comes to these three cardinal sins, we have an obligation to allow ourselves to be killed in order not to violate them. However, under certain circumstances, especially when there is uh, religious persecution, we are allowed to sacrifice our lives in order to preserve all the mitzvot, any mitzvah. How can this be achieved? The Rebbe says this can be achieved through leaping. When a person follows the regular process from one level to the next, he cannot reach such a level. This can only be achieved by a person who leaps beyond the regular process. As Maimonides describes a person who was wicked and then repented to the extent that God himself testifies that he is completely righteous. And that's actually what happened at the splitting of the sea. That's how the story goes. When God told them, He said, Speak to the Jewish people, tell them to stop davening. I don't want to hear them daven. Pack up the talus and tefillin. Not a time to daven. Now it's time to travel. So what was the, what was the next thing that happened? There was a Jew, his name was Nachshon. Nachshon ben Aminotov. And he jumped into the sea. <coughs> he jumped into the sea. Um, source number nine. This one said, I won't go first into the sea. And this one said, I won't go first into the sea. Nachshon, son of, son of Aminadov, sprang up and jumped into the sea first. Page 16, when Nachshon heard Moses say, speak to the Israelites and tell them to go forward, he went forward. It made no difference to him whether he was walking on dry land or into the sea. This was the direction to Mount Sinai and the giving of the Torah. So he went forward and jumped into the sea. He did this with complete dedication and self-sacrifice, not knowing that God would save him. This sacrifice is what caused the sea to split for all of the Jewish people. Here's what I take from this this analysis of the story. The four groups were all right. They were all, what we say in Yiddish, gerecht. They were all correct. They all had an explanation, a good explanation. In fact, very impressive explanations. Explanations that bordered on Messiah's nefesh were willing to sacrifice themselves for a certain mitzvah. They were willing to go through this terrible experience of becoming slaves once again because they had such tremendous faith in God that obviously this is something that God wants them to accomplish. There's, there's still more to be done in Egypt. They were willing to sacrifice their lives and fight against these 600 chariots, this, this immense military force. Why? Because apparently based on all of their calculations, this is what they had to do. And most impressive, they were willing to shut everything out and start davening, praying to God. They were all gerecht. They were all right. They were all correct. They were all following the playbook. What was their problem? The problem was that they were 
they were reverting back to the playbook to deal with a crisis that was not meant to be at the top of their minds. Because they were in the middle of a mission. They have a mission right now. And they need to involve they, they need to focus all of their energies on accomplishing the mission. What's the problem? The problem is that the mission seemed impossible. And it was. Why was it impossible? Because the mission is to go to Sinai. It's impossible to get to Sinai if you have a sea in front of you and Egyptians behind you. You're stuck. What was the response? Go to Sinai. But to go to Sinai, I have to go into cold water. That's exactly the point. Get out of your comfort zone. Jump. Move. Forget about the playbook. Forget about your calculations. No one needs your calculations. Go forward. It's uncomfortable. I'm not used to it. I didn't learn about this step. Okay. Jump. And that was what the Jewish people needed to experience before receiving the Torah and becoming the Jewish, the Jewish nation. Before becoming God's nation forever. They had to learn this important lesson. That we have a mission. And everything in our lives has to be focused on accomplishing that mission. Never become distracted with the crisis. And don't think that we have to start responding to crisis with logical responses. Forget about the crisis. You have one mission, and that is to reach Sinai. And that is to bring Mashiach. And if in order to do that, you have to go out of your comfort zone, you have to do things that don't make sense, go ahead and do it. Because when you utilize your power for sacrifice... To, to sacrifice your comfort zone, which is the hardest thing, by the way, to go out of your comfort zone, that's when God starts to do the greatest miracles possible. That's when seas split, and that's when Mashiach comes. So, the takeaway from this class is that we have to be willing to put our kleina fingerl, our little pinky in kalta vasar in cold water, and be a little bit uncomfortable, whether it means on our, on our own, taking on another mitzvah, learning more Torah, or encouraging other Jews to do mitzvahs, but to do so in a way that we're not comfortable with. Sometimes we've, we're comfortable uh, condemning or, or thrashing out, etc. That's a very comfortable way of trying to influence others. It's very, very difficult and very uncomfortable to try to find a way to come in a very beautiful and fine and, 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 and peaceful manner. That's where, that's where things get very, very tough and very, very uncomfortable. But that is what we need to do in order to bring Mashiach. Thank you all for joining us tonight. And, thank you. Uh, look forward to seeing you sometime soon. Thank you. Thank Absolutely. You. Sooner, sooner than later. Sooner than later.